Thank you so much for sticking around for the Q&A session of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We have been talking about in our previous podcast about the rapture and the end times and this whole, you know, mania about uh, everything surrounding that. And um, so now what we're going to do is open this up for Q&A. We'll spend the next hour in that. Let me just say, first of all, a couple things. One, if you have a question for one of us, either about something we said uh, in the first hour or specifically something we didn't cover, maybe specific scriptures or your questions about the rapture, uh, please do that. But let me remind you, this is not a debate session. So if you have a different view, uh, that's great. But we're not really here to debate you on that, right? Everybody kind of, I think, already knows and grew up with the dispensational futurist view. So uh, we're just trying to present the other alternatives to that view. Uh, but again, if you have a question, please. And if you have a question, there's two microphones we have floating around. So there's one there, and there's one there. Uh, so if you have a question, please raise your hand. We'll give you the, make sure you have the mic. That's just so we can capture it for the podcast, and everybody can hear the question, and we'll get going, all right? Here we go. Well, I have a question. Uh, my name is Carlos, and can you hear me? Yes. Great. So I agree with you guys, and I grew up in a dispensationalist church, thinking that everything in Revelation was about the future, and coming to research things like Antichrist was probably Nero, and AD 70 was the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. But I still find myself getting confused because there are these, I feel like there's a part of Revelation that talks about a perfect world in the future and it's definitely not happened in the past but is that is that should that be seen as something that's figurative or is it like choose your own adventure you know um where that is a possibility but we all have to kind of be in agreement i mean what's your guys take on those optimistic uh, chapters specifically like about the the new heaven and the new earth yeah. and all that yeah well i have i got an opinion i'm I can jump in. Or you I, I do have an opinion, too. You want to start? No, I want you to start. You want me to start? So, yeah, I I tend to view Revelation as, first and foremost, uh, like an assessment of two ways that we can go. We can, we can, we can go the way of, of New Jerusalem, or we can go the way of Babylon. And so I see Revelation as a really harsh critique of empire. First and foremost, the Roman Empire. But I, I think it's more than that. So rather than a question of like either or, is preterism, meaning like everything's already come to pass, or is futurism, which means everything's you know, sort of in the future, I just sort of say yes. And so Rome... I think I think the letter is really about Rome. But I also think human culture, human politics, sociological truths are such that empire is going to behave like empire. It doesn't matter if it's Rome. It doesn't matter if it's Babylon, Egypt before. It doesn't matter if it's Greece. It doesn't matter if it's the British Empire. And it doesn't matter if it's the American Empire. Heresy! <laughs> there must be one Trump voter here. I'm sorry. That was a low I, blow, man. I, I've had a couple of these scotch whiskeys, and I'm just 
gonna talk how I talk. But anyway, I I think the the reality of it is if we behave like empire, it's not gonna end up well for us. And that's not that's not a dig on America. That's a dig on empire. And if we become if we become Babylon, it's not gonna go well. That being said, I I tend to view I I tend. I, I take an Eastern Orthodox view on Revelation, meaning we don't draw our theology from Revelation. It's a vision. But I think there's truth in that. I, I, I do have the hopeful view of the end, meaning that the gates of New Jerusalem are always open, they never shut, and that those of us who are called to follow Christ always send out the invitation to come. And our hope is that they will. And John's hope, if John of Patmos wrote Revelation was that they would. So the kings and the the kings of the nations, the bad guys of the story are thrown in the lake of fire and later they're seen walking in the new Jerusalem. This is not this is not new to revelation. This is Jer- this is uh, Isaiah. Um this is even the Sodom of and Gomorrah story really. Sodom is laid to waste in Ezekiel 16:49. What happens? Sodom is restored. Um, this is a uh, prophetic vision of the end, where in which the nation of Israel helps bring about this, you know, this end, where in which Jesus the Messiah is really the Messiah of not just who we think is in and out, but of everyone. And I think so, Egypt too, right? I think oh, all- yeah. there's all kinds of there's all kinds of Old Testament prophecy that uses that same exact. I mentioned it earlier that. That apocalyptic hyperbole, okay? It's a poetic overstating of it's going to be so bad, it's going to be the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world that will never happen again. It's so horrible. And they use those same, and I can read these, I can read the passages where, I mean, it's the exact same language. When God speaks a prophecy against Egypt, it's the, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and, you know, the, there'll be fire that will not be quenched and, and the worm will, all that stuff. So when Jesus uses that same language, that's what they heard. They understood. It's not literal. These are not literally going to happen. It's apocalyptic hyperbole. Now, there was going to be a literal destruction, and it's going to be absolute. But it's not. the end. Here's the other thing that Jesus talks about is the end of the age. And we hear the end of the world. But it's the end of the age. It's the Jewish age, which is ended in AD 70. It could not be more ended. It's ended right now. The Jewish people have no temple. They have no priesthood. They have no daily sacrifice. These are the the core components for them to practice their religion according to their scriptures. That age ended in AD 70, and it still ended. And so that was an apocalyptic world-ending event. The the Jewish world ended in that sense. So that's the end of the age that's being prophesied, not the end of the world. Yeah. And if you want the end of the world to come for yourself, personally, it's a good thing, actually. So. What? The hell are you saying? Why? What are you talking about? Well, <laughs> when. What are you talking about? For, so, understand. for example, like, we understand that the new heaven and new earth begins when this age ends, when the end of the end of time, so to speak. And that no. can happen well, what do you mean, end of time? The end of the age. Like, well, you know, there's this idea that... There has to be the end of one age for the next age to begin. So yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that. so the people are looking for a new... A yes, new, a new, they're looking for yeah, a new... Yeah, and so we, we yeah. understand, like, in, con, yeah. in the context that 70 AD 
is when that, that the end of that age. That's true, but I also think there's another application for it. Like your your age can end too. Like your world can end too if you want it to. But it, it when that world when your sense of time ends, that's when the new this heavenly realm can be exist for you. So when when you when you stop living according to time, is that why you're late for everything? Well, <laughs> Time, time what I, what I mean by that is Got that the, time's an illusion. Right? The eter- eternal life that Jesus talked about, heaven on earth that Jesus <laughs> talked about, is profoundly present tense. I said that. This yes. is eternal life. It's pr- profoundly yeah. t- present tense. So It's now. It's now. The so there's another application. Right yes, yeah, 70, 80, yeah, that's, it's true, and that's historically and all that. But like I'm talking about for you personally in your own life, in your own experience, that you can begin to experience tr- what peace is and love is when you begin to get profoundly present and then at the, that's the end of time for you. And that's when you begin to experience the heavenly realm, the sense of eternal life, the sense of like, that's when it starts You're in, so our, woke, in our experience. I feel like where it becomes practical, you know, this, this eschatology, like your eschatology, you can end like the world can end for you. And it does a lot of for a lot of folks. There's traumatic. That's why traumatic experiences when you when you experience a lot of pain and hardship and loss in your life, life changes for you because it's an end of 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 a time period that you've lived in, and you become suffering tends to bring you into the present in a very profound way, and that's when you begin to experience the riches of this this new reality. But but don't wouldn't you agree if I'm tracking with you that the, the the emphasis. The dominant emphasis of what Jesus is about is not so much about the end, although that's necessary, right? Jesus says you have to take up your cross daily, die to yourself. I think that's what he's talking about. That dependence on your ego, yourself, being selfish in your thinking, it's all about me and what I want, right, my desire. Um, That that has to die so, but the emphasis isn't on the dying as much as it's on the newness of life, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, to me, uh, and I've only recently had that epiphany, I guess, for myself, of um, like reading in Second Peter chapter three, uh, verse ten, where he says, "But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare." That that's not a future event. The day of the Lord was was eighty seventy, and that that happened. And this idea of um, the old things being destroyed happened, and now there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, there's a new covenant, there's a new kingdom, there's a new way of being and living and, and relating to God and connecting with God that wasn't there before, that's now open and available to us, right? This idea of, of Jesus saying, if you love me, I will love you, and the Father and I will uh, will make our home in you, and if you abide in me, I'm going to abide in you. And it's this incredible connection that we have, and that's the focus. The focus is on the newness of that, right? So I believe that we're the new Jerusalem, that the, this new Jerusalem, and if you read the, the passage in Revelation, um, like it says, you know, he says, Revelation 21, 1 through 3, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And again, we think, oh, that's at the end of time when everything's destroyed and God's going to we'll make some new thing. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. Again, I think this is apocalyptic imagery, poetic hyperbole. He says, I saw the, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. 
and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. That's the new covenant. When Jesus in the upper room held up the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, read what the new covenant was. The new covenant was, I will be their God, and they will be their, my people, and I will make my home with them, and they will know me, every one of them. No one will ask, inquire of the Lord, because they'll all know me intimately. That fulfillment happened. Every time we take communion, we're saying it happened, and it's happening now, right now. I'm experiencing that right now. It's not a future thing, right? Because these things have already happened. God's dwelling is among his people, and he does dwell among them. And we are his people, and he is our God, and that, that new covenant reality is happening now. It's not postponed or paused from some future event. That's what I think. Very good. Thank you. Anyone else? Questions? Questions? Comments? Questions? <laughs> Suggestions? Accusations of heresy. <laughs> um, hi. Mark. In, in, you enjoyed the uh, presentation. It was great. You, you three really are heretics. <laughs> <laughs> Get out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my question is, uh, it appears that you three take an awful lot of the New Testament figuratively. You're allowing yourselves the liberty to interpret it willy-nilly however it suits you at the time your theology is subject to change without notice. Uh, one of you mentioned that uh, Paul didn't receive everything on the road to Damascus when he got knocked off his ass. Yes, And Literally. he evolved, and his theology evolved, maybe even first Thess to second Thess. There's an evolution in, in his theology. That's right. Assuming that he wrote those books. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'll take this one. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway given, all, given all that, uh, I'd like to know two things. Number one, uh, what is your take on Revelation? Not the book of Revelation, but divine revelation, mm -hmm. inspiration, such like that. And secondly, the people, the Christians that lived from 33 AD onward, did they take these second coming prophecies literally or figuratively? I.e., Paul specifically told these people not to get married in 1 Corinthians because the second coming was so close. That sounds pretty literal to me. So it appears to me they took it literally. But what's your take on it? Did they take it literally? And what's your, what are your thoughts on inspiration? Um, I, I, think, I think I'll, I'll go first. Because what I said was that Paul's theology sh shifted and changed. I didn't say that Paul's revelation changed. I think our encounter with God... And then our way to interpret that encounter, that interpretation, theology, is not God. Our theology is never God. So Paul could have had a revelation and then not theologized it in the way he would later theologize it. And I think that's very natural. I think that's happened in my life. Like, I've had encounters that I can't explain rationally, deductively, with reason, all these things. And I could probably later theologize, like process that over time of what does that mean? What does that mean for 
any of the ologies, soteriology, eschatology, any, anything. Um, so, and, and, and 2 Thessalonians, I'm not sure Paul wrote it. A lot of scholars seem to think that he didn't. I don't really care one way or another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scott, authorship of, of, of New Testament books. I don't know how that's heresy, but I, yeah, I get your point. Like, um, yeah, for some people it's sure it is. Um, so yeah, I would want to distinguish between our theology and our encounter with God. I think sometimes we encounter God and we can't put words to it. And I, and I would be okay with Paul having an encounter with God and then wrestling with what that meant. Um, to your first point that we're just willy nilly interpreting the new Testament. Like that's not, that's not what I'm doing. So if you want to say that that's what I'm doing, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm tracking with you on why you would say that. There, Augustine, when he talked about literalism, that's not how we talk about literalism. He's not meaning like Origen even understood and Augustine that like six-day literal creation is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a literal truth behind the text. Mm-hmm. When we talk about literalism, we talk about... It had to be twenty-four hour, six twenty-four hour day uh, periods. Mm. That's how creation had to happen. Like a documentary film. Somehow, before yeah. the sun is created, we have literal twenty-four hour periods. Well, how do we measure a twenty-four hour period without a sun? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If the sun's not on day four, how do you measure? Oops, how do you measure a twenty-four hour period without a sun? So that's not that's not what Augustine and Origen and early church fathers talked about. Literal truths of the text. When they approached it, there's this whole school of Alexandria that had an allegorical method of interpreting the scriptures. I wouldn't say the Alexandrian school of thought is willy nilly interpreting the scriptures. Did some early Christians believe in a literal second coming? Yeah, I think they did. Mm-hmm. I think they did. Are all, are all early Christians theology correct? No, I don't think so. And that's okay. Hmm. Yeah. I, you have to choose. There's, there's, at some point you have to choose what you think you believe. And then you might change your mind later. It's possible yeah. to change your mind. I think I've had encounters with God and then later theologized it and probably changed my view. And I'm okay with that. I mean, how can we how can we expect that everyone who encounters God in such a way is going to then immediately, I know the theological implications of all this, and I'm never going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I personally think Paul was wrapped up in a second temple, common second temple eschatology, where in which... Um, the good guys are going to be blessed and God's going to smote the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And there's some of that in second in Thessalonian in the right. Thessalonian correspondence. Yeah. Yeah, this this um this business of Paul talking about um being shut out from the face of the Lord and in this business of um eternal separation from God is 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 where some people are going to go. None of that is present in Romans. Right. Um and even that interpretation of Thessalonians where he says there's going to, uh, the wicked are going to suffer um, punishment from the face of God. We, we, we've, changed the tra- we've changed the Greek text to say shut out from the presence of the Lord. None of that is there. But it's still this, this second temple eschatological view that maybe Paul had to work through. Until we get to like his later letter in, in Romans, I mean, why is that not okay? Yeah, I, I've experienced that, so I understand that. I've experienced God when I had bad theology, 
did I instantly have good theology or what I would think is good theology? No. Like, it takes me time. Why is that not okay if that happened to Paul? Yeah. And I think what you're pointing out is that there is a difference in what Paul seems to believe is happening when he talks in Romans. And First Thessalonians, the passage that I read and that we talked about, um, it's sort of this unique, weird, odd, it comes out of left field. It doesn't match any other New Testament writers, and it doesn't even match Paul. And so one or two things are happening. Either Paul had one idea and then later had another idea. By the way, one of the reasons why a lot of scholars want tend to reject that Paul wrote that is because of that. I've even, um, David Bentley Hart says one of the major reasons to think Paul didn't write it is because that passage uh, on end times is such an out of the left field view. It's like Paul doesn't seem to say he believes this anywhere else. So either it's not Paul who said that, some other guy wrote it and, you know, attributed it to Paul, um, or if it really is Paul in both places, then it has to be that Paul's idea about what he thought was happening went through some kind of a shift or a change, right? Mm-hmm. So it's one or the other. It has to be one or the other. Either we're not talking about Paul, or it is Paul and his idea evolved over time. Mm. Yeah, you know, thank you for your question. Um, and I do understand it. Uh, I, I have a couple of thoughts, you know. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, people that don't, maybe that just listen, they don't, may not know you guys, you know, Matt and Keith. Um, I, mean, I can honestly just say that I really respect these guys and what their study and, and very, very much have looked into what the New Testament teaches, takes it very seriously. And um, it's, it's not, it's not willy nilly for, for, I don't, it's not willy nilly for these guys. I mean, they wrestled through a lot of things, suffered through a lot of, you know, it's not it's not been overnight and it's not haphazard. It's been very purposeful. Um, I do think this is just my view here, okay? When we when we say words like New Testament though, we're making a presumption that there is one. And I actually don't think there is one. That's just my personal that's just my personal view. We're talking about a, a collection of books that were put together in the fourth century by a select group of people. So again, we're, we're already behind the eight ball in my opinion. So mm-hmm. that's just, that's in a whole other conversation. So I don't take it that seriously. Secondly, um, when it, <laughs> when it comes to the early church, I'm, I'm profoundly uninterested with what the early church believed or thought. Only reason I care what they think is to refute people who claim to be biblical because people who claim to be biblical say, well, this is the way it is. And they have these doctrines that were invented in the 1800s. Right. And they say, this is the way it's always been. It's like, no, actually, it came out in the 1800s. It's like, this was not the way the early church believed. So I will use what the early church believes as, to way, as, as a way to like show folks and say, actually, this, your ideas that you think are so biblical are not, they're actually pretty new. They're not historic. But I don't hold up the early church as the standard because it doesn't matter to me what they believed, just to be completely honest. I, I mean, it's interesting. I like history. I'm a student of history. It's interesting to me. And I can learn from them. But I, they don't, they're not, they're, it's not the gold. It's not like I'm measuring everything with them. Because I think that we actually evolve and move on and, and, um, and move beyond that, some of those ideas that the early church believed. So um, for me personally, I mean, I think you could use the claim that it's willy nilly because I just, I just really don't care. <laughs> I honestly don't care. Let, 
the New Testament teaches because I don't actually believe it exists yeah. in its fullness. I, I, I appreciate it. I like it, but I don't hold it up. And I don't hold the early church up in the standard. I just think like people who believe, who can be very profoundly present, I don't think you have to come from this tradition. I think you can find people in different religions, different traditions all over the world that who are present and in touch with their essence that can come up with the same truth. And actually, if you study history and you read the writings of guys for, like Buddha, and Confucius and other folks from the East, they will tell you the same things that Jesus taught. And that's because they're taught, they're, they are, to me, they are tapped into the essence of the way. So when Jesus referred to himself in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The word for truth is the, is the same word that's used there is the word for reality. Mm-hmm. I am the reality. This reality runs through everything. Mm-hmm. And so I honestly believe that people can have access to this reality, and it doesn't matter. It, it transcends tribe and sectarian sectarianism. It's not a, it's not limited. It's not Jesus didn't come to start a religion or come to start another tribe or sect. So to me, you know, that's where Christianity has become part of the problem and not the solution. It's it just added to the the noise. And I just want to add to that too. Like, and I don't know, Mark, you've only you, you just come to this whole insanity of the heretic app here very recently. And I met Mark on Monday. Love this guy. I agreed with uh, everything he was saying. We, Monday night we had a, had a meeting with some friends, and um, so I'm glad he came tonight. But um, and So if you don't know or if other people aren't sure, I think this, adds, this is honestly what adds, I think, to some of the confusion when people listen to us. They assume the three of us are in agreement. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they think... That if, if, like, for example, if, if Jamal says something that sounds kind of like out there and, and, and Matt and I don't go, wait a minute, buddy, that's, you're wrong, hold on, that they, and because we don't do that, they'd assume, oh, well, then they must all agree about that. And we don't agree on a lot of stuff. That's actually the beauty of what we're doing is that we love each other and respect each other so much and we disagree on a lot of stuff. But we are willing to listen to each other and our right. different perspectives. So, right. So if you ask a single question, you're going to get three answers. Right. right. Jamal, Jamal might, he might say, I don't care what the scriptures. Like, I, I love the scriptures. Like, I am. I, I like it, too. I, I'm, I'm a fan. Like, a fan. that's what, like, I read the nerdiest theological, hermeneutical, exegetical, like, books that I'm just like, shit, I got to read this again. Over and over again. Like, oh, party foul. It's his own house. I like 1200 page books on Romans 1 through 4. Like that shit is ridiculous to most people. Like why would you read 1200 pages on Romans 1 through 4? Why would you learn the Greek the Greek rhetorical argumentation called prosopopoeia? And people are like, "What is that?" Exactly. Like because you're a dork like I am. That's awesome. I it's awesome, but it's also like it also shows that yeah, Jamal's not. I, I don't think Jamal's going to read Douglas Campbell or J. Louis Martin and Pauline scholarship, and that's cool. I'm going to. He should. I agree because then he wouldn't say so much shit about Paul. And I'm like, but I, where I'm like, dude, this this dude says stuff about Paul. Where I'm like Jamal, and the conversation moves on, and I'm like, it's all good. Yeah. You don't have to. I don't have to defend Paul or Pauline scholarship. Or modern interpretations of how to read Paul's letters yeah, right. to go, whatever, like fuck it, like Jamal said something I disagree with. So what's what? Yeah, like, but so so to, so to your point about like willy nilly, like I would encourage you to not use that kind of language because it's it's I, I don't want to say it's kind of offensive, but it's kind of demeaning because like I read like I read 
That's all I read. Well, <laughs> it's theology yeah. and books about that stuff where it's like, I'm not, we're not willy nilly doing well, Jamal's willy nilly doing stuff. <laughs> no, I, but honestly, but though, not all of us are. Not, honestly, not though, if you, if you simply stick to the New Testament, there are things you're not going to know about. Honestly, I, there's things, the New Testament is very limited. Like, for example, okay, this is, I'm going to get laughed at here, but I'll be completely honest. One of the most prominent people in the early church was Mary Magdalene. Hello. And if you only read the New, if you only read the New Testament, you know nothing about her. You know zero about her. You know zero. That's yours a prostitute. Nothing. No, actually. I know that's wrong. That's wrong. That was a pope. Sorry. But actually, about what happened in history and how her influence in the early church you actually don't know rambling? about that if you just stick to the new the New Testament, which I think was actually very purposeful. Yes. And we talked about that before that there were there were there was a concerted effort. We already talked about this, right? We talked about the scripture. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. No. We did we did one about the Bible and all this, you know, who wrote what and all that. But yeah, there there was okay. um we haven't talked about it in full, but, you know, and our engineer here is, is letting us know oh, I'm that sorry. this is an upcoming episode uh, that we're gonna do on this woman right. by the name of Mary Magdalene who is <laughs> the image and likeness of the divine. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Jamal's gonna do that whole one by himself. Oh, yeah, we, yeah. We're just gonna sit back. He'll just do it himself. But I was totally gonna bust his chops and say the only reason you think the New Testament is unimportant is because the Gospel of Mary Magdalene wasn't. That's right. If it was in it, he'd be a Bible thumper. <laughs> Thus saith Mary Magdalene. But I was just busting. And then you did it to yourself. So. That's right. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else uh, have a question? Where's the microphone? We have two microphones. Where are they? Seth has one. All right. Anybody else? Come on, we got 30 more minutes, guys. Okay, so I'm going to out myself here as a little bit stupid when I was younger, which is like uh, two years ago. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> So I grew up with this whole dispensational idea of revelation and, and all of that. And I was actually quite obsessed with it when I was younger. Like you guys mentioned earlier, like, you know, looking at world leaders and stuff. That was me. Like every time we had a new president, I was checking his birthday because I figured it had to have something to do with June 6th six, six, or something. You know, yes, it had to have something. Yes. Um, so that was me. And so when I first started hearing about this, I was told, oh, there's four, four major eschatological viewpoints and so I went, oh, pre, mid, post, what's the fourth? Right. Not knowing that all of those fit into the futuristic That's right. um, idea of eschato eschatology. Um, I know the background. You guys have talked before about your backgrounds, where you came into Christianity and, and your educational background into Christianity. Where did this change for you? At what point did it change for you? And as you talked about in the last live one, the the deconstruction of belief system, was this near the beginning of your deconstruction or was it further into the process? How did that fit in? That's good. I got to think about that and what process that happened. Um, yeah, it wasn't the main, for me, it wasn't the main linchpin. I think it's something that came later. Like my big epiphany was that the gospel wasn't about saying a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. And when that, when that bomb hit in my brain, <clears throat> like then a whole bunch of other dominoes started falling. So like, well then I had to start rethinking everything from that point forward. Uh, and so f um, I think the end times thing for me probably broke. I don't know. 
I think I did reach a point where I just, like, I, mean, I showed you guys the 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 88. So in 1988, I was in a Bible study. That's where I got that book. And a friend of mine's brother was doing this Bible study, and everybody had a copy of the book. And the guy starts going, he is so passionate, you know, he's just like, it's going to happen. And he's, gonna, he's going down. And, and uh, at first, I was really buying into it. And then probably about the 10th or 11th, you know, reason, I started going, these reasons are kind of lame. <laughs> like, I don't think these are real reasons. You know what I mean? Like, how many more of these we got, you know? Um, so I, I, I was starting to get 70. a little skeptical, but I didn't know what else to believe because there was, well, the Bible says it, and everyone I know is telling me that's what that means. So I guess, but it just seemed really bizarre. I think for me, um, what finally helped me turn the corner, uh, there's a guy, uh, I really love him, respect him. His name is Steve Gregg. He has a radio program called The Narrow Path. Uh, he thinks I'm a heretic, but I still love him. Um, and he has two books, okay, that I really recommend. And on, on, on Revelation, I brought it. He has a book called Revelation Four Views. And it's literally the book of Revelation. And so, like, this is, um, this is the fifth trumpet. And it's like, here's the historic, historicist view of how to understand that chapter. Here's the preterist view of how to understand that chapter. Here's the futurist view, the dispensational view of how to understand that chapter. And there's the spiritual view of how to understand that chapter. He doesn't take a position himself personally. He doesn't say, this is right and the others are wrong. He just says, I'm going to pretend I'm a historicist. And this is, if I was a historicist, this is how I'd understand this. And if I was a preterist, here's how I'd understand it. He does the entire book of Revelation with four complete views. And this was huge for me. And this is really only about six year, five or six years ago. That it was like, oh my gosh, there's other ways to think of this. And I rec here's why I recommend this book. If you will actually do that, you start reading Revelation when you get into some of the crazy weird, uh, you know, what, is, what the heck are these talking frogs and six-headed dragons. And when you get to those really difficult passages, you know, you read the historicist view, okay. You read the preterist view, huh. Read the futurist view, yeah, I know what that is. Spiritual view, huh. The more you keep going, eventually you're mentally going to go, this one out of the four, this one just seems to track a little better for me. And uh, that's kind of what happened for me. Uh, I just sort of started saying, this one makes more sense to me. For, for me, for me, you know, my view, as far as the end times go, revelation, prophecy, all that started to change when I started to understand the nature of money. So, for example, um, in... in um, in, in Matthew chapter 6, like Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry talk, contrasting the kingdom of God versus money. And he says, you know, okay, this is how he started. He's like, you cannot serve God in money. It's just like, really, how do people serve money? And that's like, well, no one overtly says, I want to serve money with my life. It's not like that. Yeah. But it's like, why do you do what you do? What's your purpose of your life? Are you here to make money to survive? What's the nature of your work? So then Jesus in Matthew 6 starts talking about, don't worry. Like, that's what the world worries about. Like, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, how you're going to live. That's what the, that, the mental focus, the, the, the energy that takes to devote to survival and just finding what your life's going to be about is all about survival. And Jesus said, that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is something other. Like, you don't need to worry about that because you seek first the kingdom Matthew 6, 33, and everything you need will be provided. So where is the kingdom? Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. It's within you. So it's, I started to see that and go, whoa, we're talking about a whole different economy. Then you read in Revelation, it talks about the mark of the beast. You know, you can't buy and sell. You, people who take this mark can't enter in. 
you know, all that fear stuff. I was like, whoa, this sounds like present day stuff. Like, like, oh my gosh, you know what the biggest distraction for me in my life and my like interaction with knowing who God is and knowing what love's all about and how to like serve my biggest distraction in life is how am I going to make money? How am I going to live? That's been my number one distraction from the kingdom. And it seems like it's a parallel commentary in Matthew 6, or in uh, Matthew 6, but also in Revelation. Talks about, it's like, could this just be like an allegory of the two kingdoms? The economy of the world and the economy of God, which we're governed by. And it says, let him, this is the mark 666, let him who has wisdom calculate this is the number of humanity. What, what governs humanity all over the world? Every economy, what governs it? Survival. It's two different but the economy of God's like, you know, you don't, you're not here. You're not created. You're not put on this earth to survive. You're created to love and your work and everything is going to flow from love and it's going to look very different. And yet everything you need to survive will come from that. That's two different world views. So for me, it started, I was like, whoa, this isn't about some future thing, some freaking tattoo you're going to get in your hand or forehead, which is ridiculous. It's like, this is like real stuff, real issues that we're dealing with here. It's a commentary on life. That to me is when things started to change. I was like, I don't think it's what, I, what I was taught it was, you know? That's just for me. For me, I I deconstruct. I had a I had a big problem with hell, as most of us do. I also had a big problem with the depiction of a violent God, because I looked at humanity. I looked at myself. I looked at the world and the history, and I said, "We don't need a violent God. We're, we're capable ourselves." And then I said, "If God is like that, I don't think there's a God." And I became an atheist, and I was like Dawkins and Hitchens, and and then I read Gerard, and I said, "Oh, we're just project we're projecting this shit onto God." Mm -hmm. um, that's that's how we tell our mythologies. Um, and then I started studying the history. I, I'm not a historian, but I like I like history. I like to study the development of thought. And I looked at this history and I was just like, this isn't about blasting off in the sky to be caught up in the clouds of Jesus. This is about now. That's, 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 it's not so much about where we go when we die, although our death, thinking about death is important. It's about how do we live now? How do we live in the present moment? Um, how do, how do we love our neighbor as ourself? How does thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? You know, how do we live peaceful? Like if, if, for me, it was like, if God is nonviolent, how do I live my life now? Because I'm not really that, I'm not that concerned any, like, it just was like, God, this is all just fear-based. I was so afraid about the rapture and all this stuff. And it was like, at some point, if God is love and my theology has fear, then I need to get rid of my theology. And I and for a time I want to get rid of God, and that's the natural propensity. As as Brad Jerzak points out in uh I think it's a more Christ-like God. There's n there's no better atheist creator than penal substitution atonement theory. Mm -hmm. I I would add rapture to that too. Mm -hmm. Um and that was what that was my experience. Um, but if there is a God, then God can't be full of fear and, and wrath in the, in the gross anthropomorphism that we talk about when we talk about the wrath of God. Um, and if I'm going to get rid of anything, I'm going to get rid of my 
theology. I'm not going to get rid of God. Maybe my theology was kind of messed up. Maybe it was about escaping this, this present world and not making it, making it. Well, I, w- I mean, I wish I, would, I wish I would understand the difference between my theology and at God. Because I grew up thinking my theology is God. This is who God is. Well, no, that's my theology about God. Um, I wish I understood the difference between the two. Um, sorry, I'm rambling. I, I, I think I lot. Yeah, I didn't start with the rapture. For me, the rapture is kind of attached to hell. Um, if you didn't make the cut, you're not gonna, you're not going to only be not raptured, but you're also going to end up in hell. I mean, maybe you'll have that conversion experience, right, where everything's gone to hell in a handbasket, and then you convert afterwards. I, I held out hope for that. In case my parents blasted off and I was left, I could convert then in that tribulation period, unless I died before I did. Right, and but so for me, it came like backwards. Like it, it came with. Theodicy, the problem of evil, helped deconstruct that idea of God, but also the problem of hell also. And that, and then that led to can, well, rapture. Yeah, I can get rid of that. Can I say this about dispensationalism or rapture theology? It's such an American thing. If you live in Syria today, the world is freaking ending. Yes, it is. Their you know, world is ending. Yes. If, if you're Jewish in 1938 in Germany or in, you know, or in, in Europe, whatever, for you— that's the apocalypse, and many people thought that. But yeah. That's so, what I point out as Gehenna. Yeah. Holocaust is Gehenna. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And yeah. those things are yeah. very related. See, I think that's right. the other thing, too, is like my views of hell and my views of the end times, what I started realizing was <clears throat> all these verses where, where Jesus is supposedly talking about hell, right, Gehenna, and this destruction, and the, again, what did I say? The, the fire doesn't die and the worm isn't you know, quenched and all this kind of stuff— Again, we take that language, some of that language, and we say, oh, that's about what happens to us after we die. But it's not at all what Jesus is talking about. It's apocalyptic language. It's about a coming actual destruction of Jerusalem that's coming, right, which was fulfilled in AD 70. But that, that, that hell verse isn't a hell verse at all, right? And, and so I think that was probably what helped to pull the thread. It was like, oh, if that's not actually even about the end times or even about hell, it's about some other thing that's going to happen in the, in the near future, and then let's look at all these other scriptures that I thought were about either hell or the end times. And I find out, well, both of those are either, they're not about hell and they're not about this future thing. They're both fulfilled in 8070. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and the idea of the rapture is manipulative to a Western audience because we have peace right now. We're going, do you want to be alive when there's all hell breaking loose? You better get right with God so you don't have to live through that. Like that's presuming that it's yeah. peaceful now. But if you're in Syria, it's, it's not, not peaceful, peaceful now. No, They're like, not. what? Can something get worse? Like we're being slaughtered by the millions? You know, it's like, it's strictly a Western invention. Yes. It's a Western concept. It's not, it's not reality. But that goes back to the whole idea of that superiority that we were talking about earlier. That superiority, I think, that we have here in America, for sure. Right. That it's all about us. Right. And, and so we're friends with this country because it, it benefits us in the end. Not that we really care about them. So you're right. I think I think that's a, a brilliant point that all around the world right now it is literally hell. It is literally yeah. the end times yeah. for them. Yes, it doesn't get worse in some places. Like I don't want to sound crass and offensive. Oh, come on, come on. We don't we don't care about Israel. No, because they're going to burn in hell forever. Yeah, they they fulfill 
our way to go. I mean, yes, there are ticket in, but we walk over their dead bodies to get in. Right. They don't go to like they have not given their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've rejected the Messiah. So they only fill a purpose for us. How narcissistic! Yeah, it's pretty gross. You're on. Okay, I have a Paul question for you. Talked a lot about Paul. So in my... I'm going to take this one. So kind of what you guys touched on is, you know, whether or not Paul was meaning what he was, what we think he was meaning, right? So he's writing the scripture and, you know, and we're interpreting it one way because we understand only our own cultural context, for example. So if you were Paul and you were listening to people interpret your own letters, like you guys have all written books, right? Mm -hmm. And knowing that most of our theology is received via someone else, right? So most people sit in a church and receive their theology from their pastor, mm -hmm. or they go to school and they receive it from their teacher, right? So what do you, like if you were Paul, Pretty and your question. own letters and the books that you've written, yeah. what do you think that you would be feeling or saying about people's own interpretations of your words and whether or not they were inspired, whether or not they should be canonized. 2,000 years from now. <laughs> years from now. I would not, and not understanding the culture and the circumstances in which you wrote those or right. who you wrote those to. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I take that? <laughs> you can start. Well, I want to say something too. Actually. Yeah. Well, we all want to say something, but, but you, want to, you want to go first. Start Jamal. You go, you go Jamal. Okay. I would just say, I will correct Jamal. <laughs> Yes. I, what, I, what I would say, if I would say, hey, look, you know, because when I write, I don't know if, you, if this is true of you guys, but when I write, I actually write with people in mind mm -hmm. as if I'm speaking to like folks who are like, I know, and I'm like mm -hmm. writing to them because there's things I want to get across. So I would say, hey, I appreciate that you read my book and I, I recognize that 2000 years have lapsed since you've, you know, since I wrote this and it's really hard to understand. So let me give you, let me let you off the hook here. Don't worry about what I wrote because I was actually writing to people I was living with and in community with and loving. And I want you to look and become present in your own life and look around you and see who's writing the letters and the books today and, uh, and go to them and who are the people in your life that are speaking to you and that you're sharing with and having dialogue with and just really like be present with that. And uh, thank you for honoring my work. Um, but really it wasn't meant for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I've said this many times, and I get, I get, you may scream heresy, I don't know. Um, when Paul was writing Galatians, or Ephesians, or 1 Corinthians, or Philippians, or whatever, Paul isn't sitting there writing thinking, I'm writing Bible part two. <laughs> you know what I mean? He thinks, I'm writing to some people in this other place that are following Jesus that have a specific problem or a struggle, or a challenge, and I'll, how can I encourage them? How can I help them answer this question, or deal with this problem within the church, this argument, or, or whatever, right? He's, and his, he's not thinking 2,000 years from now, people are going to be sitting you know, in, a, in a land that hasn't even been discovered yet, and they're going to be having arguments over whether I use that word in the Greek or this other word in the Greek. He's not thinking, I'm writing scripture. He's writing Letters. That's why we've asked this question. You know, we, we keep asking this question. Like, was Paul just a guy like us? Yes. Could he get things wrong? Of course. We all can. But we have elevated Paul to this level now where his words are scripture and inspired. And that means they can't be wrong. He couldn't have gotten something wrong. It couldn't have just been his opinion about something, right? 
So, yeah, I, and I agree with what you said, too. Like, I, when it comes to the Bible, I feel like sometimes our faith is more in these nameless people. We don't know who these people were, but some of these some people in the 4th century got together, sat around a table. They decided these books are Scripture and these books are not Scripture. All in favor, aye. Okay, boom. Now, these are this is the Word of God. These things are not. And... God has finished inspiring and speaking to people. And I would submit they didn't have the authority to make either of those decisions. And God has never stopped. Inspiration has never ended. To this very day, God is still inspiring people, speaking to people, giving them wisdom, giving them ideas, giving them stuff. And, and I'm grateful for all of that. And so, yeah, I think we, we tend to hold this thing as if it is this sort of magic book and it can't be touched and it's perfect. And it does lead us off into some crazy places. So. I think Paul would offend most of us. Mm-hmm. Paul told people to cut their dicks off. <laughs> In Galatians 5. That's right. I mean, so here's what, if, if, if there are teachers in Galatia telling people they need, to, they, need to, they need to be circumcised in order to be justified before God, they need to identify with these Jewish markers before they can be Christians. Paul's basically saying, if you want to make people do that, just finish the job on yourself. That's right. And we would be like, this guy's not. Yeah. He's not. <laughs> he did say that. He's like, just mutilate yourself. Yeah. Just do and the you whole free foolish thing. Galatians. Yeah, go, yeah. yeah, it's not nice things. He's no. he's not. I think he's sitting there with his with his letter to Galatia. I think he's pissed off. Yes, you get and the he, tone. He's actually you get really the tone. angry. He's a really angry. agitated book. But you right. wouldn't know that. There's no Thanksgiving at the start of it. No. You wouldn't know that, though, just reading it from the way no. the Bible is trans. You just read it now. You but you know, know the that. historical context, and people are going, some people are infusing the gospel with a little bit of law, and there's no such thing as that. The gospel does not, it, it's different. You can't, if you want to add one law, add 613 of them. Right. You know, you want to make people snip their penises and eat a kosher meal. You want to divide the church in that way. And you want to keep the Sabbath? You don't have a gospel. That's a false gospel. He he starts off right, right at the bat, Galatians one six through seven, and I think you're right. I see. I think he'd say, "Stop reading my letter," unless you know the historical context. If you know that there are false teachers from the Church of Jerusalem who are going to Galatians, <laughs> going, to your, to, going to your church, going to your church <laughs> that you, you founded, and saying all these churches that you founded and said. Yeah. Don't listen to Paul. He got some. He got some gospel from some other man. That's why he says, "I didn't get my gospel from another human. I got it from Christ." Yeah. Well, Paul, but Paul got it from the. Okay, but don't listen to him. Like he's lying. Yeah. Imagine how that Paul's pissed off about that. Like it's it's not cool with him. And so I say, hey, if you don't, if you understand that context, sure, read the letter. But understand that this is how he's. This is what he speaks. Same thing in Romans, and these and and. and there are false teachers with this hyperbolic anti-Gentile rhetoric. Romans 1, 18 through 32 is n- very similar to wisdom, thir- wisdom of Solomon 13 through 34. This is, this is, this is, well, these people are this and this and this and this and this. And there's Gentile Christians probably going, maybe some of us, just like we do, maybe some of us, but we're not all like that. And if we're going to condemn those people, well, we're all condemned. Mm-hmm. That's why Romans 2.1 starts, therefore, you, the judge, are condemned by your own logic. That's basically what he's saying. And I think Paul, yeah, if, if Paul was here today, I think he'd be very upset that we first don't understand his, his context of what he's writing these letters. 
and that we as Christians also have a lot of law in our gospel. Yes. We have, yep. we have holiness codes. Mm-hmm. Don't do this. Don't do that. Look at how, I mean. We, don't read that book. Don't watch don't that read, movie. Don't yeah, read Don't I mean, Harry Potter. We can, yeah. we can. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> and it's cultural. It's, it's cultural. It. We're all sitting here drinking booze, coffee every morning. Yeah. But some people will look at me. I smoke pot every day because I have a disease. And I, but we would judge that and say, that's wrong. Why? Right. It's the same thing. Yeah. Like we put these holiness codes in there. We we ele- we say oh we talk about sins all equal but but we talk about Not really. gay people a lot don't yeah. we yeah we don't talk about gluttony yeah. we don't we don't talk about drunkenness drunkenness <laughs> we don't talk about uh, judging others we judge all the time as Christians we're good at judging yeah. but. We're, but but gay people are gay, like they're sinners. Yeah, because they don't have the same sin I do. So we have yeah. law. We do have law. It's not grace. It's not. I don't. I don't think our gospel, our understanding of the gospel, is the same understanding as Paul's gospel. And I think, contrary to maybe what Jamal would say, I think Paul got it. <laughs> I really do. I really do. All right, Barrett has a question. So quickly, with you, you saying that, I think I know what Jamal and Keith are going to say. But Matt, it's kind of it's it's for all three of you. If you've had personal experiences of God, you've had personal revelation from God, do you give Paul more weight with his revelation of God than your own? No. No. <laughs> Why would I? Why would I do that? I no, like Paul. I, I, I don't Paul's either. Cool. I don't either. So if something that you felt like God showed you directly contradicted something Paul wrote in a letter, you'd be okay with it. Yes, if, if it turned out that Paul was anti-woman... Mm. I would say Paul was wrong. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think Paul's awesome. I think he's he's just like us. You know, he's working out. I believe in his revelation. It rings true to my heart. You know, the revelation he had. I love it. Um, but I don't think he had it all figured out. I certainly don't. I actually. Um, but but again, I don't know that. Look, if 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 I like, I wrote a book, and some people read it. If it's helpful, I'd say, yeah, great. If it's helpful for you, and you know it's helpful, take it, run with it, use it. It's great. Some things Paul wrote is helpful. Some things Paul wrote, I don't think are actually helpful. So it's like, yeah, that's not helpful. I don't really like that. It doesn't ring true to me. It actually creates a lot of problems. I've seen it carried out. It doesn't work. So my thing is like, yeah, you know, I would always go with. I honestly believe that's. How do you know what's true? This is the question you're asking. How do you know what is actually true? And. I think I really like what Jesus said. So when he said, "You want a, a, a good tree bears good, good fruit. fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit," and then it's like, "Well, what's the fruit? You know, did you do the blah blah?" No, here's the fruit. You know, and I I tend to agree with Paul when he says the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self control. All these things. These are internal qualities. By the way, no one can tell you externally if you're experiencing joy or peace. They can. They may judge that. Only you know in your core of your being if you feel joyful, if you feel loving, if you feel peace. These are internal qualities. So I would say, Jesus said, this is how you're going to know true from false. True teachers, false teachers. How Does the teaching, I always say, look, don't listen to me personally just because who I am or anybody saying it. What does it do in you when you listen to a teaching? How, what is the effect on you? Does it make you anxious? Makes you fearful to make you afraid. 
Does it make you less loving? Does it make you more sectarian? Does it make you want to distance yourself from people? Does it make you want to cut off relationships and not love people? That is the evidence of false teaching, in my opinion. That's what false teaching does. That is what Christianity does. Most of Christianity, what we call Christianity today, is false because it promotes sectarianism. It promotes tribalism. It causes people to distance themselves from another. It causes people to see people as in and out, lost and saved. All these things, to me, is the opposite of Jesus and his life and what he demonstrated. So to me, that is the evidence of how you know what's true. If it makes you more loving, inclusive, God with us, the essence of Emmanuel, God with us, you know, it doesn't mean you agree with what every, everything, it doesn't mean you agree with everybody or everything, but does it make you more loving and accepting of their essence of people? Then that's how you know what's true. I don't, I never read, I have never read where Jesus said, here's how you know what's true. Does it line up with the Bible that was created in the fourth century mm-hmm. by a select group of people? Right. I never, I haven't read that anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what he said. So I take his word seriously. I I really like Paul and I think he, <laughs> he I think really, he articulated he really the gospel Paul. better than I could. And for Paul everything began with the cross of Christ. And if Yeah, if there's something in the pastoral epistles where we get some of this anti-woman stuff, which he may not have written those. Which me he may not have written. Right. I would either say I'm not quite understanding his cultural context or he was flat out wrong. Mm-hmm. If he honestly said women cannot serve as pastors, I would say, Paul, it sounds like there's a little law in your gospel. Mm-hmm. And that might piss him off. <laughs> but that's what it sounds like. And so, and I think if Paul had 2,000 years to wrestle with that, maybe he would come to that conclusion. Yeah. But I don't think Paul was anti-woman. I no, think I, I think we're more into re- misreading Paul. Yes. Lucy Pepiot has a great book on how to read Corinthians. And the fact that Paul Paul may not have been as anti-woman as we like to think he was. Mm-hmm. And he's doing a lot of the same sort of... It's like Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert's a Republican. No. No, he's not. He you're not, you're not. You're not interpreting the Colbert report right. Yeah. And that's what Paul is doing a lot in his letters. Right. So, a, yeah. yeah, I would say either we're misreading Paul <laughs> or, yeah, if Paul was anti-woman, he, he's... Come on, Paul. Yeah. Like, well, don't be anti-woman because that's bullshit. And Paul, reason, I, maybe Paul would have that discussion. I don't know. I can't Paul's cool, Paul. but the only reason we care so much about what Paul says is because some guys with pointy hats in the 4th century <laughs> said we had to. Right. Like, freaking, dude, Paul's one guy. Yeah. No, I, I, I tend to disagree with you. I think, <laughs> I think whereas the disciples didn't understand the gospel, right, then no, the terrorist Saul understood it. And no, I you're just, right. I, 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 I love, agree. I, I find the universe really paradoxical and just weird. I, I agree with that, actually. I think Paul's revelation was instrumental for the early church. I really do. Yeah. I don't of want course, to discount yeah. that. Yeah. I, think it was, I think it was really important yeah. because he had a revelation, a cosmic revelation of the Christ consciousness that, by the way, is very similar to Eastern thought. It's, it's fact. Like, the, like most Eastern folks, if you read Hindu and Buddhist thinkers, when they read Paul's understanding of Christ, they agree. They totally agree. And I think that's really important. I don't think the, the, the regular disciples understood that. So Paul's understanding of the cosmic Christ, I think, in Christ yeah. consciousness is vital. But um, I love how it turns yeah. a violent zealot who did the law perfectly. And then Paul yeah. says that. Yes. As per zeal of the law, I was blameless. Yes. And it turns him into a nonviolent apostle. I always yeah. love that. Yes, he's a guy. He's you are persecuting people in the name of God. Then you meet the Christ, and now you're preaching the gospel of peace. That's right. 
He talks, yeah. he's, he gives in his own testimony, he talks about how he was breathing out murder. Yeah. On the, like, there right. was so much anger and murder in his heart, passion to kill Christians. Right. And he, you're right. He goes from that to being someone who, who believes in the, and follows the Prince of Peace, right. preaches the gospel of peace, and goes, goes to be someone who says, um, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's right. thirsty, give him something to drink. Right. Yeah. It's hard for Jewish people. Again, or Jew, people who come from a Jewish background, like Paul, to believe in a nonviolent God, it, it's much more difficult. So he's going to wrestle. The early church, church is going to wrestle with these things because they have the Old Testament to deal with. They have the the Jewish writings to deal with. Eastern folks, Hindus, Buddhists, they come from a little different perspective. I think we can learn a lot from those folks because they're not unpacking those same things. Well, I think they're still dealing with their struggles. Yes, they are because. They tell like there's, I learned about, I, I, you know, I, I do work with, with people with developmental disabilities and one ki- one guy's got autism, but he's a historian. That's his focus. That's his thing. And I learned about this guy who was like this Buddhist militant guy huh. who like he killed a lot of people in the name of Buddha. And it was like this violent interpretation of Buddhism. Which is yeah. funny, almost. Which is, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's comical. Historic, it's like, I mean, it's can hilariously ironic. you imagine if Christians ironic. ever did that? That would be weird, right. huh? If Christians ever did something like that? And, and wow. as I point out in my book, From the so Blood of Abel, which you can buy here on Choir Publishing. <gasps> Look at it. I'm a terrible marketer. Gandhi was killed by a Hindu. So right. Right. in all these faith yeah. traditions, so even in the East, yes. you have some very starkly different interpretations of what right. we're supposed to be doing. Yes. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're we're over an hour, so I guess we're, we've come to the end of uh, another podcast, live podcast. I wish we could do it again tomorrow. It's I love doing these. I wish we guys lived closer. We could do this more often. I'm sorry. But uh, thank you guys for being I'm not here. Moving. Part of, sorry. <laughs> part of this historic, epic, monumental event. We've we've never had our second. Um, live podcast this is the first time we've ever had our second live podcast that's right so thank you all guys for being a part of it we appreciate it and uh, let's do it again sometime yeah thanks all right